Welcome to the Picture of Wealth, the podcast all about living more of your life now, yet being responsible for your future. Lifestyle experimenter, wealth scientist, and financial coach Dustin Service shares life hacks, wealth tips, and interviews successful entrepreneurs on how they're thriving in happiness, purpose, and prosperity. So I'm excited. Danny Hooper, thank you for joining us on the Picture Wealth podcast today. Uh, I know we got lots to talk about. So again, thank you for being here. Thanks, Dustin. Well, it's great to see you, buddy. And of course, I wore this T-shirt today, my brand new (laughs) Moose Jaw T-shirt. I did this as an homage to your dad, (laughs) who used to play in Moose Jaw. He played professional hockey. He uh, did, yeah. And uh, he had a great career with Moose Jar. He always spoke highly. I think your aunt still lives out there. She does. She does. Yes. Yeah. Very. So, uh, I was I was uh, emceeing a virtual conference for the municipalities of urban or uh, 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 Saskatchewan Urban Municipalities Association. They just changed the name. So I just finished emceeing a, a four day conference for them, doing it all virtually right from my home here. And. Uh, Somebody was on speaking from Moose Jaw, and they had this T-shirt on. I said, "That's the coolest logo. That's a great. <laughs> that is a great design. It's a power, yeah, it's a power moose uh, in the power I, position." I know. I said, "Send me a T-shirt if you would." I said, "I'll gladly wear that." I said, "I got a good one of my best friends is from Moose Jaw. Your dad." And, <laughs> and I said, "I'll promote Moose Jaw wherever I can." So we were up in Jasper skiing last week. And I was on Marmot on the mountain there, and I had my Moose Jaw T-shirt on, and I was inviting everybody. I did a Facebook post saying, hey, come to Moose Jaw. They've just opened this brand-new Mount Capone. Okay. Because anybody that knows anything about the history of Moose Jaw knows that Capone Capone actually spent some time there during the Prohibition. And uh, Moose Jaw is famous for its underground tunnels that the rum runners and all that used to use during Prohibition to get the liquor into the into the speakeasies and things like that. And Al Capone actually spent some time there. So I did this ver- I did this post for Mount Capone and I, I shot it to them in Moose Jaw. They reposted. So it got lots of traction. <laughs> well, that's uh, well, there's some history there that I, I believe uh, my great grandfather was uh, instrumental in having a pool hall that uh, the tunnels may or may not have run underneath in uh, in the old days so there's some old stories and uh, i think the moose jaw paper even ran a story about uh, old grandpa art but thank well, you I'm for sure. the uh, i'm sure my father will really appreciate the moose well, jaw t-shirt we, we used to both, go there in the winter yeah, we, we both got <laughs> notorious grandfathers because look at this my grandfather right here look at this buddy was eaten by a bear <laughs> I see a newspaper article bear yeah. Mauling kills city man. This is my grandpa, and uh, this is back in 1959. This is my dad's dad, my my grandfather. This picture was taken of grandpa just a few days before the bear killed him, but he was on a fishing trip uh, out south of uh, uh, Hinton here in uh, the foothills of Alberta, and uh, yeah, the uh, black bear ran up and knocked his head right off it. Yes, <laughs> it's a pretty. So that's a pretty what, scary. So, what did my grandfather teach me? Always carry bear spray. <laughs> yeah, or have more power than the, uh, the ancillary bear. But, yeah, exactly. So you you go back to uh, born and raised in Edmonton. Was it Edmonton or outside Edmonton? Oh, first of all, I got to ask you, what what the heck are we doing here? You never even told me. Like, uh, you called me. We've been friends. I've known you since you were a little tyke, honestly. 40 years, I, yeah. I've been so impressed to, uh, from the sidelines to watch you build this incredible business that you've created and, and the career that you've had. This, man, I'm not just saying this because it's your podcast. But uh, I've really uh, admired you from afar. Your dad has always kept me posted as to what you've been doing uh, through your career. And I just uh, admire your your ambition. And uh, yeah, so when you called and said, oh, I want to do a podcast with you, of course, I said yes. But then I didn't even stop to ask you what the heck this podcast is. I know. Well, that just means this podcast is going to be a hell of a good time. So what are we what are what are we talking about? The Picture of Wealth podcast is a play on, you know, we've. We've lived this life where I have, and this is sort of, you know, maybe correct me if I'm wrong. And I, the reason I asked you is, is a long ways down, but we'll get there. So I was sort of under the impression that we work our asses off, get the best grades in school, climb the corporate ladder, build the biggest business, start your business, make it the best, and then sell it for the most amount of money. And at age 60, you will then be happy. So the more money you could amass, the more happy you could be later in life. So the whole purpose of all this hard work was sacrifice everything now, work evenings, weekends, and then at 60, you'll have 
more money than the average person and your happiness will be above average of other people. So that's not the, that's not the model that I followed. Well, I know. I got an alcoholic home with a lot of chaos and there was no talk of school. Uh, You know, uh, very little talk of school. If you went or didn't go, it wasn't a big thing. Uh, I didn't really enjoy school. I did. I did. uh, I grew up on a cattle ranch uh, west of Edmonton, a little town called Tomahawk, Alberta. I was born in Edmonton, but uh, a little later in my life as I was growing up, we moved out to Tomahawk. And I I tell people I I grew up in Tomahawk because that's where I had my first girlfriend. (laughs) That's kind of where I really grew up. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, I, I'm not joking. Dad was a dad was a drinker partier, and uh, I uh, he had me kind of convinced that I should be a lawyer for whatever reason. I think he uh, he had some friends who were lawyers, and I think he was trying to live vicariously through me. And so I thought, well, okay, I'll go be a lawyer. So I left the ranch after high school and uh, went to Camrose Lutheran College. I'm not even Lutheran. Um, But I went to Camrose Lutheran College. It's a satellite uh, campus of the University of Alberta. And I started my Bachelor of Commerce degree. And um, in fact, not only am I not Lutheran, but I was the first Catholic to be elected president of the student council. True story. You can Google it at Camrose Lutheran College. And the reason I got elected is because I had a hell of a campaign platform. Everybody (laughs) I was running against. Everybody I was running against wanted more Bible study, more choir practice, all of this stuff. And my campaign platform was to get rid of the curfew on the girls' dorm. (laughs) Perfect. Yeah, back in the day, they had to be in at 8 o'clock. The ladies had to be in at 8 o'clock on uh, weeknights and I think 9 o'clock or 10 on the weekend. So I turned it into a civil rights issue. And I had a landslide victory. Of course, all the guys voted for me and about half of the girls, um, half of the, well, all the bad ones, voted for me and uh, they got rid of the of the curfew on the on the on the campus to this day so that's how i got elected but two years into my uh, uh university studies i realized this is not where i want to be first of all dad didn't have the money to send me to college so i had to pay my way so how i did that is i put a little band together a little three-piece country band um i grew up in a country music home in fact my dad back in the 1950s and 60s um was a bit of a promoter hustler and he and a a friend of his who was a DJ at a local country radio station, they set up a little business and they used to bring in Grand Ole Opry stars into Edmonton to do shows at the Edmonton Gardens. So our house was all, I've got pictures somewhere. There's a picture of me sitting on Johnny Cash's lap uh, when I was about two years old. Um, And so I got lots of memories. Anyway, it was nothing but country music in our home. Back when we were living in Tomahawk, I had a little weekend dance band. So now I go to college and I'm going out on the weekends to play with my little dance band. And we're going out for 500 bucks a night. And I had a bass player hired and a drummer hired. And at first we split all the money. And uh, no, I got to back that up. We were going out for 50 bucks a man. So I was getting 50 there. So we started at 150 bucks. That's the story. So and the true story. Uh, we start at 50 bucks each. So we're getting 150, but pretty soon we're getting popular. And now our rate went up to 500 a night to hire us. And so I was playing every Friday, every Saturday night. And I quickly realized that you could still hire a bass player and a drummer for 50 bucks each, but I'm making 400 bucks cash every Friday and every Saturday. I'm turning up in school on Monday mornings with 800 bucks in my jeans. And my buddies are bagging groceries at Safeway for 85 cents an hour back in the day. This is back in the <laughs> early 70s, I guess. And uh, so I decided after two years of college, because I did not like school. I did not enjoy it. And it wasn't for me. And uh, I, I talked to my dad and I said, you know what? I'm going to pack this in and I'm going to hit the road and see if I can make a go of it as a country music recording artist, which is what I did. And that was a big part of my career. Uh, I was an independent recording artist for uh, many, many years. And I laughed that, you know, nobody in BC will know my name. Very few people in Saskatchewan. My career was pretty much centered um, right here in central and northern Alberta. And uh, so I quit college. I hit the road full time in 1976. I think I, I entered a talent contest that summer at Klondike Days. I've got the trophy up on the wall right there. CFCW, the local radio station, had a talent contest, and I didn't win it. I was the runner-up. So the guy who did win it, he died. He had a heart attack about six months later. So to this day, I'm a little bitter that they didn't 
give his trophy to me because it's like Miss Rodeo Canada. You know, you got the Miss Rodeo and then you got the princess, right? Now, the idea is that a Miss Rodeo Canada falls off her horse and has a concussion that the princess comes in and gets everything. She gets the flag. She gets the nice saddle. That wasn't the case here, but I was just a runner up. But the, the, the prize, second place prize was a recording contract with royalty records. Stay here for a minute. Hang on. <laughs> I got to show you this. So this is my prize. I got, I got a recording contract. I got to record. That's you. That's me. <laughs> awesome so, hair. Yeah, I know. So I hit the road with boxes of these things and I start playing all these little oil rig towns in Alberta and Saskatchewan. And I hit the road. And from 1976 to 1979, I was on the road, 76, 77, 78 and 79. I was on the road an average of 48 to 49 weeks out of the year playing every little bar and every little honky tonk. And, and, um, yeah, uh, after that much time on the road, I was growing weary of, of being on the road playing the bar scene. And it was not, you know, it had its moments where it was fun on the weekends when the bars were full. But when you're playing a little town like Provost or Casker or someplace on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday night. <laughs> yeah, and it's the same seven people there every night. All the local alcoholics. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> So anyway, I said to my dad, I said, you know, I said, I'm out on the road and I'm playing some pretty cool places like the Ranchman Steakhouse in Calgary, um, uh, the Pump in Regina, the Barkay in Saskatoon. Uh, and these were nightclubs that featured really good food and really good entertainment. And I said to dad, I said, Edmonton doesn't have anything like that. So why don't we open up our own nightclub in Edmonton? And in fact, in uh, November 1979, we opened Danny Hooper Stockyard, uh, which was Edmonton. I didn't first. know this story. <laughs> oh, yeah, that was a good one. Here, <laughs> here, let me show you this. Yeah, 1979, we opened Danny Hooper oh, Stockyard. Oh, uh, the menu. Yeah, the old menu. So this was Edmonton's first exclusive country music showroom. And we had a hell of a chef, an old Greek guy made the best steaks in town. I put them up against the keg steak or any steak. Our, our food was phenomenal. And look at the stars that played. Of course, younger viewers here aren't going to know these people, but older people will recognize names like Merle Haggard, Tammy Wynette, Ray Price, Gene Watson, Farron Young, Freddie Fender. Uh, all of these big stars came in and played the stockyard. So uh, we opened November 1979. We went broke in 1986. Actually, that's not true. We actually went broke in 1982. We just didn't realize it till 1986. <laughs> well, didn't you have any GICs at 18% stocked I away had, for a rainy day? I had mortgages. I had mortgages, <laughs> I had mortgages at 18%. And I'll tell you why we went broke at the stockyard, Dust, and you'll get a kick out of this. Um, our, our club was located in an old church downtown, yeah. crappy location, 96th Street, 106th Avenue. Uh, and um, it was an old German Baptist church. The congregation had uh, outgrown the, the building, so it split off, and half of them went to South Edmonton, built a new church. Half went to the north side, built a new church. They desanctified the building and sold it. And uh, this would have been probably 1970. Originally, it was converted to a restaurant, and it changed hands a number of times. We came in, and uh, there was a fellow running it, um, and we agreed to rent it. Dad and I did not have any money. So when we opened up the stockyard, so we said, well, can we rent it from you? And he, he uh, signed a lease agreement with us, $4,000 a month we were paying, but that included the knives, the forks, the cut rate, everything. We took over, we signed this lease. We, in two weeks, we were open up. We had the wagon wheels on the wall and the uh, lit up disco dance floor. We'd taken that out and we'd, we'd made it look like a country bar. And we opened up and um, we were just about broke within the first two, three months, because nobody came in. It was, we opened late November, 1979. It's 40 below and blah, blah. But early in 1980, a movie came out called The Urban Cowboy that starred John Travolta. Now, overnight, everybody was into country music, and mechanical bulls, and we were the only game in town. And so our business, we were just slammed. So uh, anyway, uh, we're going like crazy. Uh, for about a year, we've been making a lot of money there. And all of a sudden, one night, there's a commercial realtor comes into the place, and he's got some clients in tow, and he's got the MLS catalog out, which they used to use these catalogs back in the day right. with all the real estate listings. He's walking. It's a Friday night. We're packed, and he's got these people, and he's showing them around. So I went up to this guy, and I said, excuse me. 
He introduced himself. He's with Royal LePage. And I said, what are you doing? He said, well, yeah, I've got people interested in buying your, your club. And I said, well, it's, it's not for sale. And he said, well, yeah, you're for sale. It's right here in the catalog. I said, what? I said, why would we be selling? I said, it's a gold mine. And he said, well, you're listed in the catalog. So the light went on. I went straight to my office downstairs and I phoned the landlord. And uh, I said, Willie, I said, what's going on? I said, uh, there's people in here having a look at the place. He said, oh, he said, I've been meaning to call you. Ooh. And I said, oh, yeah. So what's going on? He said, uh, well, he said, um, I, he said, I put the place on the market. I said, well, how can you do that? I said, we haven't missed any rent. We've been paying you four grand a month. We pay you right on time. He said, well, you've been paying the rent. I haven't been paying the mortgage. Oh. So it was being foreclosed on. So I'm going to fast forward this story. Next Monday morning, Dad and I are going to talk to our banker. Of course, we'd only been in business a year. We're, uh, they don't care that you're a swinging country music nightclub in an old church. They're not going to touch that with a 10-foot pole. And we could not find conventional financing anywhere. So we had to go to underground financing, um, the non-commercial market, private, yeah. private, whatever you want to call it. But we signed a mortgage with, um, with a guy for Prime Plus 9. Ooh. Prime plus nine on a four hundred thousand dollar mortgage. So Prime uh, was probably at that time like five. Uh, April nineteen eighty two. April night. So this is nineteen eighty ten. April nineteen eighty two. Prime hit twenty one point nine percent in Canada. Holy! Prime was twenty one point nine percent in Canada. We're at Prime plus nine. So we're paying a thirty percent thirty percent on on this um, four hundred thousand dollar mortgage. That's one hundred and twenty grand. In interest a year, that's ten grand a month in interest, and you're selling rum and coke. You can look at the menu for a buck seventy-five, yeah, that's, and a beer for a dollar ten. Those numbers weren't going to work. So, anyway, again, long story short, we hung in as long as we could, as typically happens in these kinds of situations, and lots of times, business owners they pour their heart, they pour all everything they have into their business, and when it starts to fail, they don't recognize when it's time to pull the pin and sometimes to cut your losses and just get the hell out. And we did not see that at all. And basically everything we'd made in the first year, year and a half of the business, and we'd taken a lot of money out of it, we started putting back in, thinking that we can save this thing, we're going to hang on, the economy's going to turn around. Because when the national energy policy came in in 1980, I think it was about 82, if I'm not mistaken, uh, the economy here tanked and now, clients that we had, we had oil companies that ran charge accounts with us, and we had a lot of them that we would bill for twenty five hundred, three grand a month. They were going bankrupt, so we're left with a bunch of receipts. It was just not a good situation at all. So I learned a hard lesson there, but uh, it was one of the best things that ever happened in my life was the, that nightclub uh, failing. Um, it was hard on the ego, as those sorts of failures are, but uh, it was such a blessing in disguise at the time. And I say that to encourage anybody that's going through challenges right now that we're facing during this pandemic. A lot of people losing their businesses. But, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've got strong faith and I've just, I, I just believe that there is a master plan and that uh, very often we're, we're blind. We don't know when it's time to, to pivot and change course. I just call these things when they happen in your life, I call them turning points. And 90% of the time you, you can't plan for them. You don't know when it can be an illness. It can be a divorce. It can be any kind of catastrophic event in your life. But if you hang in and you redirect and, and uh, stay focused and work hard, you can come out of it. And it was the best thing ever happened because from there, I you know found myself sitting across the desk from a bankruptcy trustee with a choice, go bankrupt or pay us back our money. And uh, I, I I couldn't do that. I was able to negotiate a settlement and they gave me one year to pay them back the amount of this settlement, which at the time was a ton of money for me. And I had no idea how I was going to make that money. So I uh, had a sister who was with Royal LePage. She was selling real estate. She said, well, come try the real estate business out. <laughs> and uh, I did. And I went in there completely naive, but broke, uh, very motivated. And because I was so naive, I just took off and started rocking it. And uh, I got I got the my debtors settled in eight months. Um, so it didn't take the whole year. I got them paid off in eight months, and then I was able to uh, rebuild. What do you think? What do you think? So early on, you I, and again, I know you. So maybe it's different. But when you're trying to set up that uh, real estate practice, is likability the strategy you took, or what was your strategy to kind of build the real estate other than just sheer grit and nose to the grindstone having to pay back the debt. 
Well, that's a good question. It was not easy from the start. Uh, you know, I may be a likable character, but uh, the name recognition that I mentioned that I had actually worked against me initially. And the reason was people knew me as a country singer slash nightclub owner. Uh, the stockyard was very high profile. The morning after we closed the doors and went broke, we were front page on the Edmonton Sun. I don't have that hanging on my wall, <laughs> but I don't need that reminder. But we were high profile. So the first few months were really tough. I started door knocking, going door to door, and people would go, Danny Hooper, what are you doing? And I'd say, well, I'm selling real estate now. They go, oh, we have a realtor. Thanks very much. Or if I cold called people, I'd say, oh, no, we have a realtor. Thank you. So what I did is I went down to the real estate board. I said, I, I need an award. I need some credibility. So what do you have to do to get the million dollar sales award? And they said, you have to sell 10 houses. It was, that was basically the gig back in 19, this is 1986. I started real estate. So I set that as a goal to sell 10 houses and I got out there and I just humped and hustled. And, um, when I, after I'd sold my ninth house, and I was moving on to my 10th one. I went to the television station. I said, how much does it cost to buy advertising during the news, six o'clock news? And they said, well, it's whatever, whatever the amount was, I remembered it being the equivalent of what my average commission was. I said, okay, I'm gonna earmark my 10th house, the commission, and I, that's how much advertising I'm gonna buy on the six o'clock news. And um, so I, I, and then I sold my 10th house. I knew that I'd be getting the award. So we produced a 30 second commercial of me sitting on the, my desk. I was with Remax by now. I'd shipped it over from LePage to Remax. I'm sitting on my desk and hi, I'm Danny Hooper. And if you want to buy or sell a house, 25 seconds of blah, blah, blah. But the last five seconds was an announcer's voice coming on saying, congratulations to Danny Hooper on receiving the MLS million dollar sales award. Bang. And the night that hit on the six o'clock news, the phone started to ring Dustin and it didn't quit. It didn't, as a matter of fact, three years later, I, I got the uh, Remax Hall of Fame award, which is a million dollars paid out in residential commissions. That's what the award was back in the day. He had to earn a million dollars in residential commissions to get the Hall of Fame award. So I did that in, in just a little over three years. And um, you know the rest of the history, your dad was the vice president of marketing for Remax. And we became very close friends. And uh, it was thanks to your dad that uh, they, Remax took me on the road. And I traveled and spoke, I think, in every province and every state down in the States doing motivational and uh, speaking and sales training uh, for Remax. So it was, a, it was a ton of fun. It was a great so, experience. So in those, so now you've like got us to about age 30-ish, <laughs> 35? Yeah, yeah, about 35. I think I was, uh, yeah, I was, yeah, I was, because I was probably about 29 when the stockyard folded, 28, 29. So yeah, early 30s, early 30s now. So in there, were you ever worrying about, you know, saving for this retirement or, you know, investing or all that kind of stuff that would be perceived responsible adulting uh, back then? Yeah, definitely. Because back then, you know, when you were identified, you know, as 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 being a, a mover and a shaker, you know, the phone was ringing every day with some kind of, you know, somebody, a financial planner. Uh, they weren't called wealth management people back in the day. They were just financial planners. And so, yeah, we got involved in, in some things and, uh, and none of it went well for me. And yeah. uh, I was just, I got some poor advice. I was, uh, you know, I, I wasn't with the right people. And, um, so didn't have a good experience with that. You know, I remember losing a bunch on mutual funds at one point and, you know, the economy was cycling and I was, it was me. It wasn't so much the people that I was dealing with. I, I don't think I was hustled. I was just being naive. I didn't do my homework. I didn't do my research. So very quickly after losing some money in the, those kind of traditional type of, of uh, investments, I decided I'm going to stick with what I know, and that's real estate. So um, I started to buy real estate, and at one point I had a I think 13 houses or something that I that I bought, and I sold that whole portfolio to a family from Hong Kong that came over. I sold them a nice big luxury house here in West Edmonton, and they wanted to get into investment property. So I said, hey. You know, I've got nice package here for you and all rented out to good tenants and good leases in place and, and that. So, uh, yeah, I did that. And then another time I bought five new houses in one day, uh, out in Stony Plain, um, there was a subdivision and there were these manufactured homes that they were building and the economy was flying at this point. And, uh, they were bringing, the plant was bringing workers over from Germany 
to build these manufactured, these ready-to-move homes. And so I cut a deal uh, with the manufacturer of these homes to buy five of these things. I said, if you will guarantee leases, because uh, they, were, they were scrambling trying to find a place to put all these German workers. They had right. no place to put, uh, no housing. So I said, I'll buy five of these if you'll guarantee leases and I'll put the German workers in there. So that turned out to be a real good deal. <laughs> For a little while, but then sadly, shortly after that, Lisa, my wife and I got divorced. And so we had to sell all that. But fortunately, we hit right at the peak there. So we'd done really well on. on. <laughs> so yeah. uh, anyway, I believe in kind of sticking with what you know. But it's funny you say that, you know, we talk about this. You know, here I am now. I'm 63 years old and um, I'm, you know, Barb has got a successful business. Now we are taking a very serious look at investing now for retirement. You know, our needs have all changed. Uh, you know, so we're talking to insurance people, we're talking to the wealth management people, and we're talking about, you know, now what do we do to shift around some of our holdings and, um, you know, tax becomes a big consideration and just estate planning and all the rest of it. So we're going through all of that right now. One one thing that you mentioned, we were chatting a few weeks ago on the phone that it was a catalyst to to this reach out in the podcast is you mentioned, you know, and I want to hear about the, the, the auctioneering, which is your latest, you know, sort of, or a long time thing, but your new thing is you, you mentioned, I'm not going to actually stop working and retire as long as I can. And, and I've seen you auctioneer, I've seen it in action. Uh, help me understand the rush you get from being an auctioneer and the thought philosophy of not retiring and just, if you can work, keep working. Yeah. I just, um, you probably know, uh, as I know, a ton of people with a ton of money who've done very, very well, uh, followed kind of the traditional ladder, climbed the traditional ladder of success. And I see these people at the fundraising auctions, and I'll just back up a second and say that back in 1987, I, I started doing uh, fundraising auctions. Uh, you know, at the core, I've always been an entertainer. When people ask me, what, you know, what do I put down on your occupation? I put entertainer because that's I started as a young kid doing magic shows and haunted houses in the garage and charging neighborhood kids a diamond. So I've always had that band and, of course, the music business and the nightclub business and Real estate was the little time out kind of from entertainment. But once I got out of real estate in 1995, I got back to entertaining full time. So to expand my uh, offerings, I knew I couldn't come back into entertainment, and make a decent living as a country singer. Um, and so I said, I have to broaden out. So I focused on developing my skills as a corporate master of ceremonies and a fundraising auctioneer. And that business has just completely taken off. And uh, at my peak here a couple of years ago, I was doing you know, a hundred events a year and flying around clients, lots of time flying me in lure jets to get from one auction to another and serving organizations as small as little church groups and schools and sport teams on up to the national football league and the David Foster foundation. So, and everything in between. So, um, got really, really busy with that. And, the the, the, the money was great. And, um, anyway, I just drew a little blank here. Your question. Well, no, again. I'm, I'm, uh, you know, you're, you're, your connection with the crowd. Okay. When, yeah. Well, we start when, talking about that. So at these fundraising auctions, I see a ton of these people with all this money and they support these auctions like crazy and stuff, but I know some really unhappy people and some really miserable yeah. people, you know, and when I go to some of these bigger galas, you know, the big, big ones, the, the, and the really super rich people. And you can, I don't know. I, you can kind of look at people once you get, that sixth sense and you and you get to read people as I know you do well you get a sixth sense when there's true joy and ha and when it's masks and yeah. all the rest of it so yeah uh my rush you know I mean I just uh you know I just I'm at a point right now where could I boy I've cycled through a lot of money you know made a ton of money and uh cycled through a lot of it but we're just at a really joyful place in our life right now the resources that we do have available now we want to manage them properly over this next period of time. But uh, I, my greatest joy in life, uh, aside from just love I get with my family and being happily married now and, and all of that, my greatest joy is, is my work. That's my mistress. And I get just a real adrenaline charge being on stage and entertaining people. That's the passion, the gift that God gave me. You know, everybody gets something special. Everybody gets a unique talent or skill. I always say that. One of my greatest pet peeves is when people squander you know, the natural gifts that they've uh, been given, 
The other sad thing for me is when people don't recognize the gifts that they've been given. And, and further to that, when they don't see and appreciate and understand that no matter what your gift or talent is, what you're passionate about, you can learn to monetize that. You, you can monetize. Yeah. And I think I was the first auctioneer to ever charge for doing a charity auction because up to the point that I started charging back in 1988 to do an auction, that was unheard of because you go to auction school and they say as an auctioneer, you're expected to donate your time to charities. And it helps build your business and it promotes goodwill. And it's just as an industry, that's what we, that's how we give back. And I didn't necessarily buy into that. You know, um, I recognized early on that going in as an entertainer at, at a charity auction, I was getting people laughing. The more they laughed and the more I entertained them, the more money they spent. And then I started to really hone those skills and figure out little techniques and strategies and, and uh, little tricks of the trade that I had to get extra money out of people. So it was very easy to measure the value that I was adding to these nonprofit events. Right. So based on that, I was able to get my fees up. I started at 500 a night, uh, you know, as soon as time ran out and I was getting double booked and re multiple requests for a date, I knew then it was time to incrementally move my fees up. Uh, and I've steadily done that over the years to now, you know, I, I charge an appearance fee and I charge a, a commission uh, on the live auction and cash appeals and, th and nobody seems to mind paying it because again, it's measurable. I can, you know, I say well, it's a results-based uh, compensation. And I think just to back up a sec. So, you know, for anyone who doesn't know when you do an auction, you know, they, someone can do an auction or a charity event without a professional like you, and they can have, you know, Barry, the guy that's the local president or something, do it trying his best and gets, you know, X amount of dollars where you come in even with your fees, you're going to extract more out of the crowd, even net after they pay you to to generate you know that result. So it's absolutely, and I guarantee that you know, Dustin. You know, we tell all our clients if, if we don't perform, you don't pay. That's you know, I'm I'm that confident in that I know how to get the money if, if the people are in the room or virtually now for these auctions. You know, I I have the skill sets down to to get that money, and it's something that I've worked very very hard. Uh, and working with a bunch of professionals, you know, I'm a member of uh, an organization of benefit auctioneers uh, who share freely of information as people in your industry, I'm sure, share. And I learned that back in the REMAX days. I learned that the most successful people in the business were the ones who were most likely to help you along and share and uh, give you tips and, and help you out. So, um Anyway, but uh, yeah, it's a measurable business and I have so much fun doing it. I just love getting up in, in front of a bunch of strangers, and making them laugh and entertaining them and then making a lot of money for the organization and then being able to take a nice paycheck home. So, you know, I say, I, I tell people all the time, I don't golf. And um, if you're a passionate golfer, you never hear a passionate golfer say, I only have to golf one more month and then I can quit. Or somebody's passionate about fly fishing. I only have to fish one more weekend and then I can quit. And that's how I feel about the entertaining and what I do. So I'm, I'll, I, my goal, my dream is to die on stage one night in the middle of a joke that yeah. I hit the floor <laughs> before the punchline. And I just want to see how long people leave me lying there thinking it's part of my part of the show. Part of the show, yeah. Part of the show. But the nice thing is they will leave me long enough that I will be gone and I'll be able to watch all that. Hopefully from, <laughs> hopefully like, from up above. But no, I, that, that's such a key, you know, is it finding something in life that brings you true joy, something that you're passionate about. For some people it's golf, for some it's fishing, for some it's knitting, whatever, quilting, whatever. Find it, and you're going to want to do that until the day you die. Yeah. Well, yeah. you've, you've definitely, uh, done a number of pivots, uh, and it's chasing different passions in, in different places and some circumstantial, but. Well, uh, really what it is, Dustin, it's what really, when you think about it, it's all been looking at my core skill set, which is entertaining. I know how to entertain, make people laugh and figuring out different ways to monetize off that core skill set. Right. So no one should apologize for that ever. Um, yeah. You know, in chasing that that dream, but have you ever found uh, fear in making some of those pivots, or how how do you overcome decision fear when making a a big leap in in opportunities in um in pivots? And I got doors banging here for a second. Oh yeah. Okay, I think we're clear now. But I'm sorry. <laughs> what was the question, Dustin? No, my question is, is, is how you overcome fear when you're making decisions. Uh, in this day and age, I find a lot of clients and, and 
we take in so many things and, you know, with COVID and with the new economy and with the amount of social media and the bandwidth our brains have to take is, is, uh, it sucked, uh, you know, can be sucked dry because we take in so much. So when it comes time to making big decisions for people, they're, they don't maybe have enough bandwidth to make a, a debate and then make an effective decision. They either jump into things like investments too soon or just haven't done the research, or they wait too long because they can't make up a decision, and then they miss the opportunity. But for you, you've made a couple very key pivots in your life. And have you ever feared doing those pivots, or has it always just sort of naturally fit together? No, I've definitely, there's definitely been fear. I think it's probably fair to assume that Everybody just about deals with fear. Uh, you know, some of the pivots that I made were not by choice. Uh, you know, when your nightclub goes broke and the bank's coming in and locking the doors and seizing all the booze, um, you're out of business and you've got to pivot. So, yeah, very, very scary time then. And it was scary getting into a completely unrelated industry, real estate, and trying to figure that out. But um, I, that was the first time I really learned to surround yourself with, with good people. I got into the real estate business and I had some wonderful mentors, hugely important. And I was a member of a mastermind group uh, that uh, they had a mastermind group here uh, back in the day. And it was the top 10 REMAX realtors. And so that would, became a goal early on to, to try and qualify to be one of those top 10. So once I got into that mastermind, now I've got 10 really good mentors. And I just had good coaching. I just, uh, you know, I just want to back up for just a second and talk about what you say about the limited bandwidth, you know, and, and this has really become evident to me here, uh, you know, coming into this uh, new marriage and the five beautiful grandkids. But these kids are seven to 13 years of age. They are all on their devices full time. We just had our grandson stay with us last night. And this little guy, he's just, he's brilliant. He can tell you more about geography and history and politics. Uh, he's just, but he's on his device. 24 seven. And I just don't know how the anybody's brain can, you know, and when you're sitting there and I don't know what he's doing or looking at, but I, I know that people sit, scroll through either the Facebook or the Instagram and the news feeds and all the rest of it. And ha- nowadays, you know, and we certainly learned this through the whole experience we had during the Trump era is that we really now don't know what is true and what is fake 100%. news and, and fake news now is, it's, Seems to be completely okay with people. So I don't know. Personally, when I'm faced with a big decision and things like that, I just try and strip uh, all, everything away, try and get down to the basics, the fundamentals. And if it's, you know, we're going through the financial planning right now, and it's just getting down to what's, you know, what's the truth? What are the basics of this thing? Because everything, every business, everything it can be stripped down to its basics. Well, yeah. that, I picked up from a counselor a long time ago. She said, you know, you're going you're gonna to think about an opportunity. And so from going from where you are here today, there's a potential opportunity up, you know, to the right, you know, somewhere there's a, there's a goal that you see or an opportunity. And to get there, there's a whole series of what could happens. There's all these scenarios that you can, and you're a creative guy and you, you can logically think it, but there's right at the end, there's what's the worst that can happen. Yeah. And if you go right to the worst that can happen and you can deal with that, yeah. then everything else is mute and then move on with it. But if you go right to the end, okay, I couldn't handle that. Then you don't need to analyze it anymore. If you can handle it, then you're going for it. Yeah. And then it's very, it's cut and dry. It is cut and dry. You know, and I guess you want to, you just want to mitigate your risk uh, as, as an investor or as any kind of, no matter what you're doing, if, if I'm for your change, up, it could be and playing a sport, anything you're going to try and mitigate your risk by having the right equipment. If you're a hockey player, if you're an investor, it's going to be, you know, don't put all your eggs into one basket. It's all those the, the, classic you know, and, and surround yourself with good people. Go to the experts, go to the experts for the advice. There are people I, I've learned that a long time. I gave up flying. Uh, I was a private pilot for many, many years. They did a lot of flying, really enjoyed it. But I gave it up years ago when I was doing um, the morning show on CFCW radio, uh, when I recognized when I was flying by myself in my plane that I was my rented plane. I never owned a plane, but I rented <laughs> the plane I was flying. I started to recognize that I wasn't as sharp as I needed to be for recalling radio frequencies and, and all the stuff you need to watch. Because when you're in a plane and the wheels are off the ground, you're kind of locked in, you know, 
you're locked in. You got to get that thing back to the airport and get it landed. The only thing more than that uh, is a commitment is a helicopter. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, but, but what I realized is that, um, you know, I'm, I'm putting myself at risk here. And it was sleep deprivation was the culprit because I was getting up at 4.30 or 5 every morning to be on air to do this radio show until 9 in the morning, get home, sleep until noon, get up, try and get prepared for my evening auction events because at the time I was doing 100 events a year. So And the auctions might be in Calgary, Jasper, Lloydminster, might, anywhere. And I'd have to drive back through the night from Calgary to be back in time to do the radio show. So I was suffering from sleep deprivation and I gave up my flying and I realized then that there are better pilots than I'm ever going to be. And to mitigate the risk, I'm I'm not going to do this anymore. Fly privately when I have to fly, I'm happy to fly commercial. So, and now, you know, we're looking at, you know, we're talking to insurance experts and wealth planners and all of that and the bankers and lawyers and, you know, we're going through a whole raft of experts right now, trying to learn everything that we can before we pull the trigger and make some decisions here. Yeah, well, that's uh, that's exciting. And and on the sort of wealth front, if you think you know you've done very well for yourself, but you think of the five richest people that that are in your sphere, and then you think of the word you know you think of the five wealthiest people you know, is it the same five people? Absolutely not. And and Absolutely. so that. Absolutely. You know, my, some of some of the most joyful people I have. We know lots of wealthy people who have a lot of joy, but we know a lot more unwealthy people who have very joyful lives. Right. So you know, joy and and uh, being rich and being joyful and joy is different than happiness too. You know, I'm talking. You can you can having a lot of money. You can be happy. You can go shop. You can go spend. You can go buy something to make you happy for a minute. That's one of the great lessons that I have learned. I've I've had some 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 good revelations uh, through the years. I do a lot of journaling, and uh, one of the mantras that I had throughout my entire career, I think, was SFP, and that okay. stands for SFP, and that's simple, fun, and profitable. And if it's not simple, if it's not fun, if it's not profitable, I don't touch it. And the second that I'm in a business where things start to get a little too complicated uh, and not as much fun anymore and not simple, and the real estate business for me was starting to get to that point, I, I pulled the pen and walked away from it and didn't regret it for a second. I took all those boxes of real estate trophies that I had here when we built the new house last summer and put them in the dumpster. You know, that's not how I define myself any longer. It used to be by how many trophies and awards I had up on the wall. And that forced me to set a lot of goals that I paid a huge price for personally. You know, when I achieved those goals, you know, divorce and the family falling apart. And to this day, I still suffer with a daughter that's not talking to me because she's still hung up about the divorce 15 years ago, you know. So, yeah. you know, having a lot of time here through COVID to sit and think about my life and unpack a lot of things. And Barb and I went through an incredible program through the church called Freedom Sessions. And uh, this was where it's a nine month program where they have you. They basically got you and dump everything on the floor. You pick up your life one piece at a time and examine it and process it and figure out how you're going to deal with it. And, um, you know, stuff going right back to childhood. So we went through all that and it was just just so freeing, you oh, know, I and I've just had all this time. to So simple, fun and profitable. That was one of the mantras. And, and still to this day. And we now have adopted that uh, same philosophy into our relationship. If it's not simple, if it's not fun, if it's not profitable emotionally for us and profitable as far as nurturing our family and our love for each other and our grandkids and our kids, we're not going to do it. We're not going to touch it. It's an easy, easy decision. So SFP was a good one that I came up with. The other one was, uh, and this, this one, I'd spent a lot of money before I realized this one. And this one is that you don't have to own it to enjoy it. Yeah. And I've had the $75,000 wakeboard boats that when you go to sell them, they're worth 30. And <laughs> I had the million dollar bus entertainer coach, you know, that when you go to sell it, it's worth 400. Yeah. And I've done, you know, I've done some things. I look back at some of the boner things I've, I've done and spent money on and things that at the time I figured I had to own. And uh, now we're big on renting. You know, I said to Barbie last week, we're playing a crib game one night. And I said, honey, we should buy one of them Class C motorhomes and uh, jump in and just go travel. She said, oh, we'll rent one for a month. <laughs> very practical, like very smart. She said, now we'll rent a Class C motorhome for a month. And then if you really enjoy it, we'll rent it for a second month. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you mentioned the, uh, the, the income thing. And, 
you know, it was about three years ago for me that every year I was increasing my revenue 26%. That was the goal. So some years you hit it, some years not. And one day I extrapolated out and said, by the time I'm 55, I'm going to have to be making, you know, 5.9 million, have 19 or 25 staff and all this extra headache. And when I usually ask entrepreneurs, you know, we're, we're meeting and say, you make 400 or 500,000 a year. What would it mean to your life if you made 300 and had every Friday off? And yeah. usually they're, you know, their brains kind of, uh, I can never take Friday off, but did you hear the numbers? Can you live on 300? Oh yeah, for sure we can. And we can still save. Well then what do you do? Like when you make 500, what do you do with it? Well, yeah. I just spend more and I save more. Yeah. Okay. Well, what can you save enough with 300? Well, probably. And it's just sort of this, this light. And that's back to how we started the podcast and, and the essence of it, that getting people to figure out how hard do I need to work to get whatever is important in life. And that they, you know, you mentioned the motor coach, the, the example I use is an Airstream trailer, a 28 foot Airstream is probably about 120,000. A yeah. 28 foot Jayco is probably 40,000. Yeah. So, you know, they both are going to take you camping five times a year, which is the max you're probably going to go. Right. And really you want to be around your family and your friends around the campfire, not even in the freaking trailer. Yeah. Yeah, but it's, it's a status good. thing. It's a, it's the old school status that, oh yeah, I, you know, hopefully someone asked me how much I paid for that trailer and I can tell them. It's ego and it's status. And that is a great killer. And that's one of the real things I had to wrestle with Dustin personally was overcoming my ego. My ego got me in so much trouble, uh, in my life. And, uh, you know, uh, yeah, it's just, you know, I look at the major stumbles that I've made in my life and 90% of the reason was, was my ego. And, you know, the Bible talks to us about humility and, uh, I just, you know, I'm just studying that and working hard at being humble now, more humble and just gra- living in gratitude. And to your point, another great question is really being able to honestly look yourself in the mirror and honestly ask the question, when is enough enough? Like what is, and Barb and I are sitting right now doing our retirement planning going, oh my gosh, we're going to, yeah, it's, yeah, unless the uh, bomb comes and blows it all up or something really catastrophic, but then hopefully we're going to heaven. So yeah. the end game for us as Christians, you know, it looks pretty good. And I, you know, and when you, when, and that kind of alludes back to what you said earlier, when you know what the worst case scenario, what's the worst that can happen? I, I could die. Yeah. All right. Now it depends on which faith is. If you think that's it, it's, we're all going to face that. And that's yeah. the worst that can happen. So naturally you don't want to blow your brains out, saving every penny and suffering it through a lifetime to have this big nest egg. And then perhaps the banks collapse or the, economy collapses or whatever, and, and you're hanging yourself in the closet. You don't want to live like that. So it's balance, right? It's yeah. just, it's moderation, it's balance, but we definitely believe, you know, we get up every morning and say, Hey, what are we going to do for fun today? Because every day you got to have some fun years ago. And I shared this with your dad. And when I was out uh, speaking for Remax, this was a very popular thing I shared with people. And it was my, uh, a tool I used back in the day when my life was really getting out of balance with real estate as it happens in that industry quite easily, because especially when you're a realtor with a young family, by the nature of the business, especially back then, you had to be out working on weeknights, you had to be working on weekends, doing the open houses and showing homes and things like that. So you're completely counter to the rhythm of family life. And uh, I created a tool called the KPV checklist, and that was my key personal value checklist. And on that personal value checklist, I put all the things that were important in my life. So um, family, it said finances, um, fun, friends. I had a list of all these things and I printed up a bunch of sheets of these. I had them in a binder. I used this tool for a number of years and it was amazing. Every morning I'd get up and I'd say, okay, family, what's one thing I'm going to do today for my family with my, what's one thing, write it down just a sense. What's one thing I'm going to do today for finances? Oh, got to talk to my financial planner about this, or I got to call the bank and open up a new savings account or whatever. What's one thing I'm doing today for my business? What's So I would write this sheet out and then I would put that in the binder. Tomorrow morning, I get up. The first thing I did is I take a look at that KPV checklist from yesterday and I give myself a check mark for the things I accomplished that day, an X for the things I didn't. Put that into a binder. At the end of the month, you've got a month's worth of these things. You sit and you flip through, and very quickly, those red Xs, the things you missed, will jump out at you, and you just track the data a little bit, and you very quickly see where you're off course. And that tool, that single tool, that KPV checklist, really helped pull me 
back together and, and get a lot more balance in my life. What, uh, and that's, uh, that's, I'm, I'm going to put that in the show notes, but what, what do you journal about? You know, and I, I'm a journaler myself and, and people often ask, uh, what, you know, what do you actually write? But I'm interested to know, you know, you don't have to tell me the specifics, but is there a theme or is there, you know, a, a key thing that you write down about certain things, the same every, every day or every month or whenever no. you journal? Yeah, mine's not so much a dear diary thing. It's, uh, it's it would be deeper, a lot deeper than that. Uh, some of my favorite books in my book collection. I've got four or five really wonderful books on on journaling, and uh, so it's something I've studied over the years. And uh, I've got a closet full of journals. I started when I was, I think, fifteen years old, fourteen, fifteen uh, was when I first started to journal. I don't do it every day. Um, one of the great techniques that um, I've uh, adapted lately. And most recently, I've kind of fallen away from it. But um, I, I would talk to you uh, prior to us starting to record the show about the experience when I came back from Victoria. I've been living in Victoria for four years, came back to Alberta. And uh, just before meeting my wife, Barb, I had nine months, very quiet time, very spiritual development kind of time. And I read a, a wonderful book called The Artist's Way by Julie Cameron. And uh, one of the techniques that she and it that was the best book I've ever read when it comes to self-help or motivation. It's called The Artist's Way. And it just it's a book that speaks to creative people and um, how often we're misunderstood. It, it, it creates lots of challenges in our relationships because lots of times creative people are a little ADD or a lot ADD. And it's all these types of things. But one of the things she talked about at length in there was um, journaling, and she calls it your morning pages. And I got onto that like a dog on a bone. And for about a year solid there, got up every morning, and it's uh, I used little moleskin uh, journals, and I write you write three pages. And it's just freewheeling. It's just getting the pen. It's just, hey, a pretty nice morning here today, sitting at my desk in my yada yada, having a cup of coffee. And, and you just let your subconscious kind of flow th- down through the pen. And there's some really interesting readings uh, in <laughs> those journals from that nine month period as I was going through that transition, coming out of what had been a very traumatic time in my life and uh, abusive period in my life and, and just settling down and getting ready for, for a true uh, marriage. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's good. And I think, uh, again, really appreciate uh, your time. One thing you mentioned that I forgot was uh, as a, uh, on the, on the record, thank you to you uh, for when I left my previous partnership nearly uh, that was 2014. So uh, six, seven years ago, uh, you were one of the calls that I made of the basically three, four key mentors. And I, you know, talked to you about your stuff. So thank you very much for encouraging me to take that leap because I wouldn't be sort of where I am here today. So thank you, uh, Danny. Well, Dustin, I remember that conversation too. Uh, as a matter of fact, we had a couple of conversations on the, on the subject at that time. So yeah, just like I said earlier, I just really admire what you've done. Just I just love seeing young people that just take life serious and take business serious and uh, take their families serious and, and just build a, um, a meaningful, joyful life. And uh, you've been a great example of that. So you found your way very, very quickly. I remember when you were a kid just doing the bodybuilding and stuff, just, you know, how focused and intense you were. And you talk about a dog and a bone. And that's well, what... that, now, now people are going to be commenting, saying, let me see the Speedo pictures. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, there was one. For sure. But you were very, very focused early on. And uh, I know that your dad's very, very proud of you. And I'm certainly proud to call you a friend as well. Well, thanks, Danny. What uh, in closing, what what would be your ultimate picture of wealth? Uh, Well, having love, number one, uh, in your life, because if you haven't got love, you don't have anything because love gives you somebody to share. Uh, life with and uh, and sharing is just enormous and and um, you know if you're in this life to accumulate experiences and objects and things solely for yourself that's a pretty shallow existence and empty existence and uh, true joy comes in sharing and as we get wealthier we're not able to share just with our loved ones but beyond that share with the community and and people and organizations uh, in need so love would be the big one health is the next one you know barb and i are both kind of fitness fanatics she's got me 
on a Fitbit here and, and stuff. And we had a little gym downstairs. We love working out, you know, on our own or together. But um, just uh, we both take our health very, very seriously. And uh, I think everybody's smart enough to understand if you don't have your health, you don't have anything at all. Um, the money, like if you're to list the top 10 things that are important to Barb and I as a couple or even me just personally, money would be down at the towards the end of the list. And at one time it was number one. Right. Like it was, and that's when my life was completely upside down. And as I said, driven by ego and making a lot of bad choices. And I've come to understand through the COVID period as I've gone and done a lot of self-introspection and we've worked through the freedom session and I've done journaling and things I've learned uh, a little too late that sometimes the distance between your choices and the consequences of your choices is, can be a very great distance. Mm. Powerful. Distance between your choices and the consequence of those choices can often be a very, very, very. So great. there's a lag. There's a, it can be. It can often be. You don't. Yeah. Don't see the consequences right away. Quick. And uh, as I said today, I'm still paying consequences for you know choices and decisions I made you know 30 years ago. So right. Anyway. Well, thanks, Denny. I. Uh, where can people find more information on uh, on who Danny Hooper is? Uh, go to my website at dannyhooper.com. Uh, dannyhooper.com and uh, if you're looking at having a fundraising event or know somebody who is uh, i've got a whole uh, resource section on there where uh, this is something else i did during covid with the spare time is i created a 20 some little two to three minute tutorials on how to organize a successful fundraising event so how to organize Perfect. a live auction how to find donations how to sell tickets to your event uh, how to sequence your live auction, how to set up a silent auction, super silent auction, a wild card auction. <laughs> I didn't know so many existed. Oh, yeah. it's a, it, You know, and, and you talked about that earlier, you know, getting some regular Joe up to do your auction at your event just because he's got a good heart. And, and right. uh, you know, it's a, it's if if you need if you need uh, brain surgery, you're not going to go to a gynecologist. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right? You're going to go to somebody who knows what they're doing. So it's no different in our business. I would be dead in a minute if I had to go do a cattle auction, a livestock auction, yeah. or an auto auction. You know, Barrett Jackson, I wouldn't even, they wouldn't look at my application. I wouldn't even send an application because I know nothing about, you know, the auction industry is like so many industries is highly specialized. And the fundraising uh, auction is a very specialized uh, uh, auctioneer. Uh, that knows how to do those things. So anyway, there's lots of good information on the website. Well, I, you know, the plug for, and again, I was trying to close off, but I can't help myself because it's such a great story. I've seen you in action with, uh, I can't remember the event, but it was uh, it was a sailboat. So someone had donated a sailboat and for a week, and then there was a chef and uh, the guy who owned the sailboat or, or, or couple was sitting there. And then you had two people bidding on the, the sailboat trip. And so once it got to a certain point, it was getting kind of slowing down and we we're going to call it. And I think you said, okay, Mr. Smith, would you do two sailboat trips? And he said, yeah, sure. That'd be great. And he went sold. And it was both those people were so happy because they both got a sailboat trip and you just created double double for the charity, which is a win yeah. for everybody. So that's, and that's something that a livestock auctioneer might not necessarily think to do. Yeah. You know, or an auto auctioneer might not think to do because they only they're only concerned with how much can I get for this car or for this cow. Well, it's only and one item. The one so item with, with experiences. That's a great. Yeah. Uh, I'll leave you with just a funny story here. I was in Kelowna selling a multi million dollar home. Uh, this is a couple of years ago, and it was I was working at the time okay. for, for a, a wonderful a friend of mine, Alex Lambert, and he's got Lambert. Uh, it was called the Garage Sale Luxury Auction House. And Alex had this for whatever reason, yeah, he, partnered I remember. Up, he partnered up on this particular house with a company out of, I think it was Florida. So the president of this company from Florida comes up, he gets up before the auction starts and he said, we're so proud to be here in Canada. He said that we have brought along a bottle of Dom Perniot champagne and we're going to ask uh, Mr. Hooper, the auctioneer to auction this bottle of champagne and whatever it sells for, I'm going to personally write a check and double the amount, and we're going to donate that to the hospital here in Kelowna. <laughs> here we go. Here, here we go. go. <laughs> so I get going. I said, all right, would anybody go $5,000 on the bottle of champagne? Let's go $5,000. Well, Jane Gilchrist, who you know, that top realtor out there in Kelowna, one of the top realtors, uh, not Gilchrist, Jane uh, Hoffman. Hoffman, Hoffman. Jane Hoffman, pardon me. Jane Gilchrist is a friend of mine from Edmonton. But Jane Hoffman, she's so wonderful. And she puts her hand up because she had the listing on the house. And so she just wants to, 
be a good supporter. So she puts her hand up at 5,000. And I was surprised because I was starting at five just to be funny. And I said, how about 6,000? Well, one of the registered bidders to bid on this house, he puts his hand up. So I go 6,000, 7,000, 8,000, 9,000. Sold out to Jane for $10,000. And I, so I said, Jane, are you happy? She said, absolutely happy. And I said, sir, I'll tell you what. I said, um, it's not quite yet 9 o'clock. Liquor stores are still open. We can run and get another bottle of Dom Perignon. Would you consider matching Jane's bid at $10,000? He said, absolutely. It's going to the hospital. So bang, bang. We had 20 grand. <laughs> Mr. Florida had to write a check for $20,000. <laughs> yeah. He wasn't, you could just see the blood drain right out of his face. Oh, yeah. I, don't was, I don't think he was happy with the, with the auctioneers, what the hospital in Kelowna was. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Well, that's just, <laughs> again, hire a professional and uh, you get what you make your life a lot easier. So thanks, Denny. Uh, and I look forward to catching up and hearing your next update. Hey, buddy. Appreciate it. Thanks Talk for having soon. me on. If you found this episode valuable, share it with a friend. If you found this episode super valuable, leave us a review on iTunes. It will help us continue to bring you top quality content. For more information on anything discussed on this show, visit www.servicewealth.com. That's service spelled S-E-R-V-I-S-S. Any investment topics covered on the show are not investment recommendations, and you should seek professional advice before making any investment decisions. This show was produced by Podigy Podcasts. Thanks for listening.